You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Rachel Levine, the Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of Health and Human Services, joins Washington Post Live to address her agency's efforts to increase vaccinations among Americans of all ages. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed-Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today, we're gonna be talking about the troubling rise in cases from the Delta variant and also vaccination challenges with Dr. Rachel Levine. She's the Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of Health and Human Services. And Dr. Levine, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's wonderful to have you at a time when we need to understand so much more. There was a change in guidance this week from the CDC resulting from new science about the Delta virus, including new mask uh, advice, advice, even for people who are vaccinated in certain settings. What is the science behind that change? Well, so we know and we have been discussing for the last number of months that the Delta variant is different. The Delta variant uh, has been shown to be more transmissible. It is at least twice as contagious than previous forms of COVID-19 that we have seen. Um, And approximately two months ago, the Delta variant was one or 2% of the percentage of COVID-19 cases that we were seeing in the United States. Now it's more than 80% of the cases that we are seeing. So because of this more contagious variant, CDC has changed its guidance in terms of masking. And it is recommending that if you live in an area which has moderate to high um, uh, spread, community spread of COVID-19 is that when you're in public, you wear a mask. So that's the broad picture, but scientists this week were really wanting to see the data. So were the public. I believe we may be seeing more of the data later on today. Why the delay? Why change the guidance without giving scientists a really good sense of what lay behind it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the CDC will be releasing uh, more data today. Um, in its weekly MMWR, or Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. So data should be coming this afternoon. So mask mandates are also returning in some parts of the country. Do we need to be masking up? Would you recommend masking up? And and, are mask mandates the way to go? Well, so uh, mask mandates would not be done federally. There are some um, local or state health departments that might might choose to do that. But we do recommend that if you are in areas that have a moderate to high community spread of COVID-19, that you wear a mask when you're in public. Now, if you're in other areas of the country, um, other communities that don't have that, um, it it would be more of a a personal choice whether you wanted to, to take that extra level of safety and to wear a mask. So we understand that, that historically, of course, um, state and lo- local governments, and you, of course, have worked for a long time in Pennsylvania and have experienced this on a state level, have taken the lead in these issues and can see the need to have differing uh, mandates or recommendations in different parts of the country. But should there be greater federal oversight at this point on these issues that are causing so much frustration with people perceiving a change back and forth about uh, masks and other things? Well, you know, the change um, in terms of our recommendations is because there has been a change um, in what we are seeing in the country. Um, So we have to adapt our 
recommendations according to, to, to the data on the ground and what we are seeing. And we are seeing the spread of this more transmissible Delta variant. Now, you know, as you said, I was previously the state health official in Pennsylvania. And so what we really need is very close collaboration and coordination between federal public health officials, state public health officials, and local public health. And that collaboration is how we'll be most successful. Thank you. I have a viewer question that relates to this that I'd like to ask you. I'm going to read it to you now, and I think the question will come up on the screen. It's from Mary Jo Marks from Ohio. And Mary Jo asks, do you advise masks in crowded outdoor events, such as concerts and air shows? Well, the, the COVID-19 virus and even the Delta variant is less likely to be transmitted um, outdoors. Um, it is much more likely to be transmitted indoors. If you were in a very, very tightly packed outdoor setting, it would be reasonable to wear a mask. And it's really personal choice about the level of protection that you would like to take. So I'd like to ask you about a policy President Biden announced that was federal employees should either be vaccinated or undergo weekly testing. Is weekly testing sufficient to slow this virus, particularly now that we have the Delta variant? Well, as you said yesterday, President Biden issued uh, a directive in terms of federal government employees. And so federal government employees will be asked to attest to their vaccination status. And if someone does not uh, attest that they've been vaccinated or they have not been vaccinated, then they will be required to mask um, no matter where they're located. And the recommendation is to test once or twice per week uh, to, and to socially distance and generally not be allowed to travel for their work. Um, so we're taking these, these measures to protect the federal work. Another puzzling aspect of this new variant is the drop, sudden drop in cases in both India and Britain. How do you explain that? And do you expect to see um, strange behavior from this virus that may not be directly related to human behavior and how we're responding? Well, so um, we'll have to get more data about what's exactly happening in those, in those other countries. Um, so, you know, we're gonna, again, continue to collect data from throughout the United States. And we do get reports from data from other countries and uh, particularly from Great Britain. Um, and as that data is analyzed, we'll use it to inform our decision. So you're, obviously we talked about you working in Pennsylvania, but you're also a pediatrician by training. And I think some of the questions coming up now are about uh, vaccinations for children. When do you expect to see vaccines become available for the under 12s? Well, thank you. I, I wanna emphasize first about the importance of our vaccination effort. Our vaccinations against COVID-19 are safe. They are effective and they're more important than ever for, to protect us from the spread of the Delta variant. Um, so, you know, the Pfizer um, vaccine is authorized right now for use in adolescents um, 12 through 17, of course, in addition to adults 18 and older. Um, there are studies um, being going on right now uh, in younger children uh, uh, five through 12. And then there is clinical trials being done as young as six months to five years of age. Uh, Pfizer is ahead of that, uh, of, of the curve in terms of their, uh, they're working to complete those, uh, those studies. 
the Moderna um, vaccine is sort of right on its heels. And so we hope to have the completed clinical trials by the end of the year. But, you know, we'll be looking to the science and it's hard to put a date on when scientific studies will be completed. Uh, but we're hoping to have data by the end of the year uh, for those younger children. So that's very encouraging, although it seems a long time away as well. Um, are you hearing of any evidence of negative side effects for these younger groups? Uh, no. Now, again, those clinical trials are proceeding as we speak. Um, but um, we would not expect to see a different safety profile than what we saw in teens, for example, 12 through 17. Um, but we will await the results of the clinical trial. So uh, until we get this younger group um, vaccinated and we all interact with younger children, um, will we be able to reach herd immunity? And is that goal of reaching herd immunity even relevant now that we're talking about this highly transmissible virus? Well, you know, herd immunity is when there's enough people in the, in the, in the community or the population that have, um, uh, that have immunity to the virus so that it doesn't spread. That immunity could be uh, from our safe and effective vaccines. It could be from people who've had the virus and developed their own immunity. Of course, the, the, the level of protection that you need depends upon how contagious the virus is. And so the, the amount of the population that would need to be uh, immune would be higher given the higher transmissibility of the Delta variant, more contagious, so you need a higher population to achieve herd immunity. So we don't know what that number is, and so we'll be observing the data. The key point, however, is that is that it really depends upon our safe and effective vaccines. And so we need people uh, to, uh, to take that step and to roll up their sleeve and to get vaccinated and to complete the series of the vaccination. Of course, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, you require two doses. People need to do that to protect themselves, but also to protect their children. As we've been discussing, we do not have a vaccine for children under 12. So to protect their children, their families, and their communities, we need people to step up, roll up their sleeves, and get their vaccination. So again, I'd love you to talk as a pediatrician, and you know about parents' worries about their own children. How do you address those concerns for parents who are looking to sending their kids back to school this coming fall? Sure. So it, 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 we really do want children to be back in the classroom this fall. We feel it is very important uh, in terms of their education, but also the physical and mental health of children to be back in school. The key to getting children successfully and safely back to school is our vaccination program. So the more um, teens that are vaccinated that are 12 through 17, the more that their parents are vaccinated, the more their community is vaccinated, the safer it will be for those children as they enter school. But we do want children in K through 12 classes, uh, as well as the teachers and staff to wear masks, given the transmissibility of this Delta variant. So this was a change, of course, because at one point CDC was think saying they should not have to wear masks, and now that has changed too. Do you think that's gonna be a consistent message now, now going ahead, knowing what you do about the Delta variant? Well, we'll always have to change our messaging and our guidance depending upon what we see on the ground. 
But, um, but I anticipate with this Delta variant that that message will be consistent for the foreseeable. So the Washington Post published numbers showing um, a triple, I think, in the number of uh, cases in the last month, a tripling of the number of infections. What does that suggest to you about what the fall will look like for us? Well, I think that what the fall will look like will depend upon the success of our vaccination program. Uh, and we are seeing an increase in the number of people who are rolling up their sleeve and getting vaccinated. Um, but as we've been talking about, this Delta variant is extremely dangerous. It is significantly more contagious, more transmissible than the previous forms of the virus. Uh, and there is evidence that it can lead to quicker onset of disease and more severe disease. Um, so I think that, uh, that, that the, pro the prospects of the fall could be very challenging. However, if we are able to continue to ramp up our vaccination program, that's the most important way to protect people in the fall. So another unsettling piece of news recently came from the CDC director who thought that the virus could only be a few mutations away from a variant that could potentially escape vaccines. How, you know, speaking as a scientist, I've asked you as a pediatrician, how does that inform your thinking going ahead and how should it inform messaging to people who are still hesitant about taking vaccines? Well, whenever the, the, the virus it has significant community spread and transmission, and there's lots of cases, um, then you, you can see the development of variants. It has to do with how the, the, the virus evolved. And so the way to actually decrease the amount of variants that we would see would be to increase our vaccination program in the United States and to increase the vaccination programs across the world. I think that it should inform people about the importance of getting vaccinated now. We have a tremendous safety record with these vaccines. Um, almost 350 million doses of the vaccines have been given in the United States and countless millions more across the country. They have a remarkable safety profile. And we know that they are effective against the Delta variant in terms of people getting very sick, in terms of being hospitalized, et cetera. And so now is the time for people um, to, to, uh, to get vaccinated. And that's the best way to protect against the development of these variants. So are vaccines really the only way we're gonna stop this thing from spreading? Well, you know, there are three tools in our public health toolbox since the beginning of the pandemic. And I have been saying this in Pennsylvania and, uh, and now nationally. The first is containment. Containment mean, means uh, significant rates of testing uh, and then uh, um, notification of those that are positive and contact tracing, finding out who their contacts are, and then having isolation and quarantine. So that's a way to contain the virus. The second tool in our public health toolbox is mitigation. Mitigation includes, for example, the masking recommendations that we just came out with, previous recommendations that limited um, the size of indoor and outdoor gatherings, et cetera. Uh, mitigation is very challenging for people, but it can be very effective. And the third are medicines. Uh, one is the most important, is our safe and effective vaccination. But the other I'd like to emphasize are actually medicines such as monoclonal antibodies for the virus itself. We have a safe and effective monoclonal antibodies that can be given to people who have the virus. Uh, it needs to be given early in the course, especially for those who might be more susceptible to getting very, very ill from the virus. 
seniors, those with, um, who are immunosuppressed, those who have other uh, medical conditions, for example, hypertension, heart disease, diabetes, um, et cetera. So those are the three tools, containment, mitigation, and medical countermeasures, so to speak. Um, and so those are the tools that we have to battle COVID-19. I'm glad you raised the medical community. I have a question not only about the use of medicine, but the role of physicians in getting people vaccinated, which I think is growing. Is there more the medical community with its authority should be doing to move us ahead and to counteract this enormous spread? Well, there, there are several different ways and, uh, that we partner with the medical community and we have regular communications uh, with the medical community, as well as our state, local, and other public health officials throughout the country. Um, one is that, you know, our medical community are on the front line. I mean, they are, uh, they are nurses and doctors and other medical providers that are seeing patients um, in doctor's offices and clinics and doing testing, uh, as well as seeing patients that are very ill and in the hospital. So they are, they are medical heroes. Um, I think that it's also really important for the medical community to be talking about the safety and the effectiveness of the vaccines and to be giving vaccinations. And we are working with more and more members of the medical community to be giving vaccinations, doctors' offices, clinics, hospital clinics, pharmacies. Our pharmacist partners have been giving, you know, millions and millions of doses of vaccination. The other point I'd like to emphasize is that other people on the front line who deserve our respect and support are our public health officials. They're on the front line too. Local public health officials, state public health officials, the epidemiologists, uh, the, the, the public health workers um, that are working tirelessly at all levels uh, to protect our health. And they deserve our thanks, our respect as well. So the Biden administration put from the word go enormous emphasis on getting people vaccinated. And it was clear early on that there would be, a, there would be early adapters and then a slowing of this, uh, adopters, sorry, and then a slowing uh, of the uptake. Could you talk about any of the innovative measures the Biden administration is looking at or has adopted to reach the people who are sometimes hesitant and I, I think actually now hostile to the vaccine? Well, you know, I think it is important to recognize that we have made significant progress over the last um, uh, six or more months under President Biden's leadership. Um, we ha there have been administered totally um, almost 350 million vaccinations. 160 million Americans are fully vaccinated, including 80% of seniors and, um, and approximately 69% uh, of adults. Um, but this Delta variant is different and it requires you know, us, us to be innovative. So um, one thing that we're doing is um, we are, uh, the president has actually recommended in calling on state and local governments to use funding that they have received, um, including funding from the American Rescue Plan uh, to offer $100 to anyone who gets fully vaccinated. So a financial incentive. Other states have, have uh, had lotteries, et cetera. I think that those are very innovative. They're not sufficient, but I think that they're innovative approaches. We are working across the nation to make sure that there are, are tens of thousands of vaccination sites throughout the United States. About 90% of people have a vaccination site within five miles of where they live. We're looking for people to get vaccinated at pharmacies, to get vaccinated again at, at clinics, at um, doctor's offices, um, at, at hospitals. Um, and we're actually asking schools now 
uh, to work with their local and state health department uh, to have school clinics pop vaccination clinics, school pop-up vaccination clinics, at least one, but maybe many school, school pop-up vaccination clinics. Um, and so we want local and state health officials, as well as pharmacy program partners to work with school districts to host these clinics. So we, we're looking in different ways, try to, uh, to make it more um, accessible for people to get their safe and effective vaccine. You mentioned how public health officials are on the front line, perhaps as never before. There has been a, a legislative backlash across the country in many states against the perceived overreach of governors and public health officials. How do you address that? Again, you saw this as a state level, you're now working at a federal level, and are we making ourselves more vulnerable with a potential surge this fall, and even to a next pandemic, whatever that may be in the future, by rolling back on some of this legislation? Emergency powers. Well, I, I think it has been very challenging, really, throughout the course of the COVID-19 pandemic that often uh, this has been politicized. And I think the uh, politicalization of, of this public health crisis um, has made, the, made our public health response more challenging. This is not a political issue. This is not an issue of, 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 of freedom of expression uh, or freedom of speech. This is a public health issue. And so we all have a collective responsibility to ourselves, to our families, to our communities, and to our nation uh, to, to work with, with medical and public health officials uh, throughout the country uh, to stem the spread of this dangerous virus and now this even more dangerous COVID-19 Delta variant. And so any type of political actions which limit the ability of public health to do its job, I think, are counterproductive. So coercion and incentives all can have a backlash. And the Republican governor of South Carolina recently said that pressuring people seemed like bad policy. Does he have a point? Well, we, we, want, to, to, we want to offer whatever incentives we can. And the most important thing is to provide accurate information uh, about COVID-19, about the Delta variant, about its significant risks to our communities, the risks to our children, especially as they, as they enter school. And we hope that by providing that accurate information, that is actually the best way uh, to convince people to get our safe and effective vaccines. And we have to counter disinformation. Uh, disinformation in social media, for example, and our, our wonderful Surgeon General has had a campaign over the last two weeks uh, emphasizing how important it is for us to counter that misinformation and for us to transmit accurate information that can lead to the best decision. Let me quickly read to you a tweet uh, from uh, Texas Congressman Dan Crenshaw. Um, he said, uh, addressing the president, how about you don't knock on my door? He's talking about vaccination. You're not my parents, you're the government. So how can you counter that sort of sense that the government is intervening in parts of people's lives that they feel are private? Well, so, you know, when, when, we're not actually knocking on doors. It, it, was, it was a, um, the, the statement was to describe that we want to engage people um, uh, in, throughout the nation in terms of the accurate information about the safety and the effectiveness of, of the vaccine. So, um, so that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to uh, uh, talk with, with local, state, federal public health officials. We want to we work with community members. 
And that is the purpose of the community core, the COVID-19 community core, so that actually local respected community members can speak to their communities about the safety and the effectiveness of these vaccines. And so that people make the right decision to get vaccinated again for themselves, but also for their children, their families and their community. Dr. Levine, during this COVID epidemic, we've seen a drop in life expectancy. We've seen rises in anxiety and depression and also in drug overdoses. How can you address those factors, which are clearly to do with COVID, but also go beyond them? Are, are we neglecting other problems as we focus on COVID? So it's critically important that, that to know that actually local, state, and federal public health officials are really, our offices are dealing with the, with the entire spectrum of public health issues that we've always dealt with. Um, so in terms of mental health and substance use disorders, um, I, that, that's a very, very important point. Um, CDC data indicate that in 2020, we had the highest rate ever of deaths from drug, drug overdose, approximately 93,000 deaths from drug overdose. And so I think that that is related to the significant mental health issues that have been triggered by COVID-19 and the pandemic. So um, we, we um, are going to address that head on at the Department of Health and Human Services with Secretary Becerra's leadership. Um, he has um, reinitiated our Behavioral Health Coordinating Council. I'm very pleased to co-chair that um, with the Assistant Secretary for SAMHSA. Uh, and we have committees that are be looking at um, substance use and overdoses. We're going to be having committees look at um, how, to, how to expand treatment, for example, the integration of physical and mental health uh, in health clinics and doctor's offices and hospitals. Uh, the importance of telemedicine now in terms of behavioral health and substance use treatment. So we're going to be looking at all of those different factors to be able to address the significant mental health issues that we're seeing now and, and we're likely to see in the future. And how about the rise in homicides that we're seeing across the country? Well, we are seeing a rise in homicides and the president has spoken out about, uh, about uh, that in terms of uh, firearms and firearm safety. And so I'll leave that to the president, but he has spoken out about, um, about the importance of, of uh, and the significance of firearms from a public health Dr. Levine, before we finish, I'd like to ask you about your own personal story. You are the first openly transgender person to hold such high office in this country. You've been in this job for four months. How has it been? Well, it, it is going very well. Thank you. As you can see, I'm, I'm in my office in, in Washington. Um, we certainly have been very busy. Um, I'm focusing on, of course, COVID-19 and all of the issues that we've been discussing. I'm also focusing on the mental health and substance use issues that we've been talking about. As I mentioned, I'm co-chair of the Behavioral Health Coordinating Council, and that has uh, been a longstanding um, uh, focus of, of my career. Um, health equity in general is a cross-cutting issue that our office will be focusing on. Um, uh, I'm a member of the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force. We're actually meeting today, this afternoon, um, but health equity crosscuts everything that, that, that we're doing. And we're actually going to be forming a new office. And this new office is going to be focusing on climate change and health equity uh, and, all, and, and environmental justice. So, for example, uh, you know, the issues of, of heat, 
uh, the severe heat that we're seeing in the United States, but it of course impacts um, uh, some communities more than others. So it is a significant health equity issue and we will be forming a new office to focus on that. Assistant Secretary Levine, I am so pleased that you were able to join me today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. I think we all learned a lot and I loved uh, ending on that note about health equity. That's all we have time for. If you want to hear about future programming, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com where you'll see an exciting lineup of upcoming programs. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Francis Steed Sellers. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.